the goal of a preacher is really to get out of the way and do everything they can to help us hear from the Lord through his word. So it would mean a great deal to me if you have a Bible, if you'd open it to Mark 8. If you want to use your pew Bible, it's page 844. We're going to be in verses 34 through 38 of Mark chapter 8. And I just want you to see this sermon as coming specifically from Jesus, not from me. This is his word for us. And let me pray for us as we get ready to listen to Jesus. Jesus, we submit to your word, all of it, and we set aside our preferences and we acknowledge our inabilities. And so we ask for help, that you would help our minds to understand and help our hearts to embrace and accept whatever it is you wanna say to us today. We pray this for your glory, Jesus. Amen. One of the striking things about Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, you know he appeared to a lot of people after he was resurrected. One of the striking things about these appearances is that Jesus still had his scars. So when he's trying to convince doubting Thomas that it's really him, he says, put your finger here, see my hands. He's pointing to the pierced hand where the nail had gone in. Put out your hands and place it in my side. He's pointing to where the spear would have gone in. Jesus is pointing to his scars. And then in the Bible, when we get scenes from heaven, when people are worshiping Jesus, it's not just that he's presented as the lion of the tribe of Judah. They're worshiping the lamb that was slain. The point is simply that Jesus' scars from his suffering endure forever. And the reason for this is because his suffering is an essential aspect of his love. By his suffering, his willingness to die for us, he displayed his honor and obedience to his father. His scars forever say, Father, I honor you. And through his suffering and death, he purchased our lives. His scars forever say, I love you this much. This is why last week in our passage from verses 31 through 33, this is why we saw Jesus say not that he might die, but that he must die. He basically said this is what real love looks like when it flows through an evil and a corrupt world. This is how it looks. Well, this week, as we move into verses 34 through 38 of this same chapter, Jesus moves from talking about his suffering, which will create his scars, to our suffering, which will create our scars. Jesus says that his disciples who follow a crucified Messiah, they'll suffer too. So verse 34, he's very straightforward. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples. Notice he's not just talking to disciples now, the whole crowd. This is a message for everybody. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, verse 34, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whether you choose to follow Jesus with your life or not, your life will have pain and suffering. 
So let's just get that out of the way right away. You're gonna deal with pain and suffering. You're going to face death one day and so will the people you love. But Jesus is saying something more here. He's saying that if you, if you want to live God's way in a world that's opposed to God, you're going to face a different type of or an additional type of trial. So sometimes obeying God will put you at odds with the lifestyle of a friend. And sometimes obeying God will put you at odds with a political affiliation. And sometimes obeying God will put you at odds with your own family. And all times, in all places, obeying God will put you at odds with you. Because the heart of this message is self-denial. Jesus says, deny yourselves, meaning I'm king, that means you have to be dethroned. And Jesus uses a vivid picture to describe the cost of following him. A cross. Now, crosses and crucifixions are not everyday sights for modern people. But they were if you lived in the first century in a, in a, a Roman city or around one. You, you very likely would have seen one of these. And typically, with a crucifixion or crosses, the the vertical part of the cross would have been maybe left in a hole in the ground standing, and the crossbar would have been given to the victim to carry on their way to be crucified. And what this would do is adding to the pain of the crucifixion, it would add an element of shame as you were paraded in front of mocking crowds and people could gather. It also gave you, gave you time to anticipate what was going to happen. I mean, this, is a, this is amazing. This is why I want you to see it from Jesus. I mean, if I were coming up with ways to talk about discipleship, I wouldn't come up with this. This is, this is amazing that Jesus says this. He basically is saying, take up your call to a painful death filled with public shame if you want to follow me. So this message is hard. You might think of it as strong medicine, however. It's strong, it's hard, in the sense that it's not easy to imbibe a message that you're supposed to deny yourself to the point of your own hurt, even your own death. But it's medicine because, as we'll see in a moment, it's actually God reaching back into a world filled with blindness and death and offering one doorway out. This is it. Come through here. And in following this process of cross-bearing and self-denial, what we're actually going to see is that a person actually comes to find, them true, find their true selves, to taste life, and to know the eternal joy of treasuring Jesus enough to let go of the world. Our passage is structured very simply. It has one command. You just got to remember one command today. Verse 34. It's basically this. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus follows that command in the next four verses with four reasons you should keep it. So if you said, Jesus, why should I do that? He's like, I'm going to give you four reasons. So if you look at verses 35, 36, 37, and 38, do you see that they all start with the same word? They all start with the word for. That means he's giving a reason. So 
The word for could also be translated because. So essentially, the simple logic of our passage is this. If you were to change some of the rhetorical questions to statements, you could read it like this. Verse 34, you should take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. We say, why should I do it? Verse 35, Jesus says, because for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's why you should. Well, give me another reason, Jesus. Okay, verse 36. You should take up your cross and follow me because it doesn't profit a man to gain the whole world by not following me and lose his soul. Well, give me another reason, Jesus. Okay, you should take up your cross and follow me. Verse 37. Because a man cannot compensate for the loss of his life. The final reason, verse 38, you should follow me because whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now all I want to do with you this morning is briefly consider each reason Jesus gives for following him. And maybe they'll prick you. Maybe they'll get you off the bench into the game. Maybe they'll encourage you if you've been following him for a while. Maybe they'll help you know how to think about mission. Maybe they'll help you think about how to pray for a friend. But let's look at these reasons, four of them. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to start with the bottom reason in verse 38. And the reason I'm going to do that is because I actually think these reasons build one on top of another to a climax in verse 38. And so if you think about if you're walking on a deck, think of a deck you're walking on as the cost of discipleship. We're going to go under the deck and we're going to look at a pillar holding up the cost of discipleship. And that pillar under the deck, these are the reasons why it's good to be up on this deck. And if you know, if you've ever looked at a pillar under a deck, you can see the wooden part that's supporting the deck. But if you've ever built a deck or torn one down, you know there's something under the surface. It's called a footing. It's poured concrete. It often lies out of sight, but it's the main thing supporting the deck. I want to start in the footing of this passage in verse 38. This is a reason that often lies out of sight that we never think about, that if you remove it, causes the deck to collapse. So we're just going to start at the bottom and work our way up. So reason number one, why should you take up your cross and follow Jesus? Verse 38, summarized, can say this. You should do this because, Jesus says, if you are ashamed of me today, I will be ashamed of you tomorrow. That's why you should get close to me today. Here's verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Every week as a church, we say together a creed, either the apostles or the ninth scene. And in the creed, we say that we believe he, Jesus, will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. You remember saying that today? This language in the creed, it comes from passages like Mark 8, verse 38, where Jesus is talking about coming in glory with holy angels. Jesus is referring to a prophecy from Daniel that Charlie read for us earlier. We referred to this last week. Let me read it for you. This is a prophecy about what will happen in the end. This comes from Daniel 7, starting at verse 13. This is what Jesus has in mind. I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Now, why is Jesus bringing up the final judgment in a passage about following him today? Because a person's relationship with Jesus in the present points toward their relationship with Jesus in the future. And God has sent his son, Jesus, into the world to save the lost. So those who are ashamed of Jesus, ashamed to be associated with him, Jesus says those who are ashamed to be associated with him in a sinful and adulterous generation, for them, Jesus will be ashamed to be associated with them when he comes back in the glory of his Father. I mean, what he's essentially saying is, look, if you're embarrassed to be identified with me in front of sinners because it's not cool to follow my ways in front of this, this world, if you're just ditching me because of that, you're going to be doubly ashamed when I come back. You'll see him in all his glory and you'll think, oh, that was, that was the cool group. I wish I would have joined you. But I, I didn't because I didn't want to not be cool because of you know, this generation, their opinion matters more to me than, than you do. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, this is a hard teaching. This, this teaching about the final judgment where Jesus actually comes back and he rejects people who reject him. It's a hard teaching. It just is. It's also not very popular today. We want to assume that God loves everyone the same, no matter how they relate to his son. We want to believe that if there is an afterlife, everything probably works out for everybody. I mean, except for Hitler, except for whatever politician you currently hate, except for all those people. It's all going to work out. Everybody gets in. But I want you to notice how our deck collapses if we remove this footing. I want you to notice what happens to the logic of Mark 8, verse 34 through 38, if we blow up this foundation. So I'm just gonna read the passage for you backwards by undoing Jesus' point in verse 38. Just follow me. Verse 38. When the Son of Man returns, he accepts everybody, no matter what, even those who are ashamed of him and reject him. Verse 37. Therefore, a man can pay any price to get his life back in the end, because Jesus is cheap. Therefore, verse 36, it profits a man much to gain the whole world because you already possess eternal life. Therefore, verse 35, whoever holds tightly and selfishly to his own life in this world, he's smart. But whoever gives up their life for Jesus right now is a fool. Verse 34, therefore, if anyone asked you to deny yourself and take up a cross and follow Jesus, you should instead embrace yourself, lay down all burdens, and walk away. Universalism, the idea that everything works out in the end, it's, I understand why it's so appealing. We all want everybody to be okay. It's just that this idea, it makes the death of Jesus, 
and the suffering of the hundreds of thousands of Christians who have come before us, meaningless, meaningless. Didn't have to happen, Jesus. We all get in. Now, to just apply this for a moment. This foundation to discipleship, it has to affect the mission of a local church. It has to. How we think about our mission to our neighbors has to involve bringing them into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, helping them to love him and walk with him. This must be at the core of our mission. So that's the first reason. And I hope you're just hearing this from Jesus. Why should I, why should I bear a cross to follow you and be associated with you? Because when I come back, if you're proud of me now, I will be so proud of you then. That's the first reason. Reason number two, verse 37. Why should you take up your cross and follow Jesus? Why should you trust him with your life at great pain? Because only Jesus is valuable enough to handle the value of you. Verse 37, what can a man give in return for his soul? This is a rhetorical question. We looked at it a little bit last week. The assumed answer, what can you give in return for your soul? The assumed answer is nothing. If in the end of your life, you lose your soul, you're standing there and you got all this stuff and you're losing your soul, there's nothing that could compensate for such a loss. Like there's no value that would offset losing you. And Jesus is saying, you're not gonna have anything you could usher forward at that time. You'll offer your good deeds. Look at all the nice things I did, God. You'll offer your excuses. But I lived in a modern world. Who in the world can believe in Jesus in a modern world? I mean, I don't wanna be a fool. And God will ask, what about my son? What about all those times your parents took you to church? What about all those Sundays where you said the creed? What about all those times you cried out and you, you wanted someone? What, what about your own plans and desires? What about these did you not want to set aside for my son? My son was sent as a payment for your life, but you were embarrassed by him. What about that? What can a man give in return for his soul? Do you know how valuable you are? Do you know that's one of the points of this passage? Do you know how valuable you are? Have you considered the miracle of your own existence? You know, I watched a nature documentary recently about the coastline of British Columbia. And during, a, it's an amazing, amazing, beautiful place. During, the, during a small period of time, tens of thousands of Pacific herring fish, they come to the shores and spawn. And I mean, it literally changes the shore, all these eggs. And the, the documentary said that there is about 20,000 eggs per square foot. 20,000, 20,000 little potential fish. Just think of that. And the vast majority won't make it. Now, this is not a biology class. But the likelihood that a human egg ends up becoming a human being is probably even smaller than that. Do you know what an unbelievable, unlikely miracle it is that you made it into existence? I mean, the odds are so unlikely. They're so unlikely. 
And the Bible says that God actually knit you together, decided that these things would meet in conception. He knit you together. He chose you and he gave you life. And do you know that with your physical existence comes an eternal soul? Do you know that once you get into existence, like once you pop into it, you get it forever. You will always be alive forever. And God sent his son so that you could have eternal life instead of eternal estrangement from him. So what could you pay God back for giving you this miracle of existence, then offering you his son so you could have eternal joy? So when you have something really valuable in your life, like your own child, you don't just entrust that life to anybody. You would only entrust the life of your child to someone who was very valuable and very wise. Jesus is simply saying here, when you come to follow me as a disciple, I know it's costly, but don't, don't miss this. You are entrusting the value of you to the hands of the maker. And only Jesus is valuable enough to handle the value of you. That's the second reason you ought to bear any cost to stay close to him. The third reason, moving up to verse 36. The third reason, I'll summarize it this way, then read verse 36. Why should you pay any cost to follow Jesus? Because if you gain all earthly glory by not following him, only to lose yourself, you've gained nothing. Verse 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Remember Jesus' teaching about the guy who gets rich and just starts building bigger barns? The guy goes, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know, I'm often struck, I don't know if this happens to you, but I'm often struck when really powerful or famous people die. It's like people who really nailed it in life. And I'm talking about people who are well-known or famous for good reasons or bad reasons, like Hugh Hefner, John Lennon, Babe Ruth, more recently, Michael Gerson, a friend of this church in years gone by, and our prayers go out to his family. I wonder when these people die who have tasted pleasure or fame or power in this life, I often wonder what the trinkets of this life look like when your eyes are suddenly open to the eternal glory and worth of God. And you're like, look, my PhD. Look, God, I... Look at my bank account. And I got two cars and a big house. And I think at that moment, you would give it all up if you knew what the life was he's offering you. Peter Kreeft is a professor up at Boston College. He's been teaching there for like 70 years or something. And he's written so many books. And I just want to quote him here. He, 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 he says something along the lines of this thought here about gaining the world only to lose your soul. This is him. Freud asked this question in Civilization and Its Discontents. 
Modern man has become like a god, master of the forces of nature by his science and technology. Yet he's not happier than pre-modern man. Why? Freud thought the answer had something to do with sexual repression and guilt. But the pill and the sexual revolution, they've pretty much removed the first, any sexual repression, and Freudianism has removed the second. Among major segments of the population, people don't ever think they're guilty. They don't feel shame about doing whatever they want sexually, and yet they're not happy. Kreft goes on, is there a simple, obvious psychological explanation for this? And he offers an answer. Mark 8, verse 36. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Why should you risk losing things in this life for the sake of having Jesus? Because to gain the whole world only to lose your true self is the tragedy of all tragedies. That's the third reason Jesus gives. He gives a fourth. We're back up at the top now. Verse 35, near the top. Why should you Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Jesus says, because in giving yourself for me, you will become yourself. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. There's a very basic paradox of logic here. And that is that you get life by giving up life. Uh, John Stott, uh, quoting this passage, excuse me, referring to this passage, he writes, if you insist on holding on to yourself and on living for yourself and refuse to let yourself go, then you will lose yourself. But if you are willing to give yourself away in love, then at the moment of complete abandonment, when you imagine that everything is lost, then the miracle takes place. And you find yourself and your freedom. Have you ever experienced that? It's like a perpetual trust fall. Okay, Lord, I'm going to just, I'm going to let go of all my dreams, all my aspirations, my idea of control, and I'm just going to go ahead and give for you and serve you. And this totally feels like I'm dying. And then, bam, in that moment, you're like, boy, that was a great day. Even if you got martyred that day. Now, in this passage... Jesus is talking about that principle of self-sacrifice leading to self-liberation. And this is true, like, no matter what reason you give yourself for. But I want to show you that Jesus is saying something real specific here. He's not just saying that anybody out in the world who decides to be philanthropic or altruistic or nice for any old reason is doing this passage. He's not saying that. He's being specific. Back to verse 35. Notice, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You gotta lose your life for the right reason. Don't go dying for the wrong thing, Jesus said. When you give yourself to others for the sake of Christ, when you give things up, in your life for the sake of Christ and his gospel. That is a transaction where you get back far more than you give. At the end of time, 
Jesus in another passage where he refers to this scene from Daniel and the Son of Man in judgment. At the end of time, Jesus is here presented as a king. And here's what he says. This is, this is from Matthew. Let me just read you this scene. It says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it for me. You see, Jesus connecting this service with one of my brothers, when you did it for my cause and my people, for my namesake, when you go out into the world and you give stuff up for the gospel and you risk for Jesus, Friends, you are entering into a transaction that is profound. And, you know, a fish is made for water. And a fish is not free if somehow it squirms its way up onto land. And I think if you think about what we're made to be, if you think like we're a fish made for water, well, what water are we made for? Being made in the image of God, we are all made for the ocean that is loving God and loving neighbor. These are the two great commandments. So if you're living any other life, you're a fish out of water. What this command is teaching us is how to actually get back into this ocean. Because you see, to love, to truly love is to give yourself away, you know that. So if the great commandments are love God and love neighbor, Jesus is simply saying, come this way and I will help you give yourself over for loving God and give yourself over for loving people and my cause. And in doing so, you won't find that you're dead. You will find that you're more alive than you've ever been. So let's summarize. We've worked our way back up the passage. Let me just summarize these four reasons that as best as I can tell, Jesus is giving us for taking up our cross and following him. Jesus says, friend, let go of your life and instead give it in radical service to me and my kingdom. Here's four reasons why. Because at the end of time, I embrace the man or woman who embraces me today. Because I have the resources to pay for your life, to forgive all your sins before God's perfect judgment. Because any treasure you're going to gain now by not sacrificing for me is going to look like ash compared to the true life I'm offering you. And because, friend, self-denial and self-sacrifice for my sake and the gospel, it's actually the doorway, the only doorway through which you can become your true self, a man or woman set free from the shackles of self to love God and others. What's your alternative? What's the other path? A damned life, a debt you can't pay, a treasure that fades, and a self that's in bondage to itself. Such is the path the world offers you, dear friend. Which path will you choose? 
And Jesus called the crowd and his disciples and he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Amen.